We're going to be in 1 John. Mostly in chapter 3, but we will be in 2 and 4. Because remember, we, we talked about in this series how John kind of takes these laps around these concepts. Well, we're going to be dealing with the concept of loving our brother, loving one another. So as we enter into this time, let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, what an incredible thing it is to be able to just bask in your love. God, even as we have considered, hopefully in the last week after Jeff's sermon last week, just considered what it is to meet, what it means to be loved by you and what your, your love is like, how you define love. God, I pray that, that, would, that we'd be so consumed by that that it would turn us out to be able to love one another as you have loved us. God, help us to not take this for granted. This is both the simplest thing that we could consider, the most basic thing, but also it is so deep that we will never fully understand how to love as you have loved. But God, help us to grow in it. Help us to understand more, to love more, and to to live more in a way that demonstrates that we have been loved by you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So John, in, in his letter here, there's a central theme. And this central theme, really, that he says over and over and over again is that we are called to love one another, that people are going to understand who we are by our love for one another. And in his gospel, the gospel of John, that is a pre- predominant and just prominent theme throughout. And last week, Jeff talked about that love, that vertical love, the love from God, and what does that mean to be loved by God, and how does God define love? And, then, and, and I know Jeff was just so itching to like be able to talk about the horizontal love, that what it means for us to love one another, but he graciously left that. He just kind of set it up on a tee for me so that we can talk now about, okay, if we've been loved by God, then how do we love one another? And here's one of the things I really want you to understand from the beginning. These are not separate things. Okay? These are not things where I say, okay, I'm going to work on loving God. And I do that through reading the Bible and praying and, um, and studying and, and worshiping. And so I, I'm going to work on this stuff. And now I separately go and I'm going to, I'm going to work on loving other people. So I'm going to be kind. I'm going to, I'm going to serve. I'm going to give. I'm going to, I'm going to do these things. But, but a lot of times we see those as separate things. And what I want you to understand from this letter is that they're not separate. They're connected. And John connects them. He connects them by saying, look, if, if you've been loved by God, then you will love others. And if you don't love others, that's evidence that you have not been loved by God. This command that is given to us to love one another is, is critical. I want us to understand the, the, the critical nature of it, the, the priority of loving others, and why does it get put up here on this, on, like, why is it so centralized in this letter and throughout Scripture? I want us to look at, at how, what, it, what it looks like then to do it. Like, how do we actually love as God has loved us? And I, and I want us just to consider briefly what it means for the world. What's on the line in our loving one another. So one thing that we realize is that 
this love one another command is prioritized. It's, it's from the beginning. In, in John 2, or in 1 John 2, John writes, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. Anybody see why John gets confusing sometimes? I'm writing, it's no new commandment. It's the old one from the beginning. At the same time, it's also new. Okay, but why does he say that? It is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Okay, so what, part of what he's saying is this, this is not a new commandment. Like this has been going from the beginning of time. So this is, these are critical verses when we talk about like, okay, was the Old Testament just a separate thing and now Jesus came and, and we eliminate the Old Testament and now we just have the New Testament? And we see in passages like this, no, like this, Christ came to fulfill the law, to fulfill all the things that have come before. And so what John's saying is what we're telling you is actually what has been from since the beginning, but now you see it fulfilled in Christ and commanded through Christ. So in that way, it's both the old thing that you've always heard, but also this new thing that we see manifested in Jesus. He says in chapter 3, verse 11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So Jesus comes and displays and puts on display what does it mean when God says to love your neighbor. This command that has been since the beginning, Christ has now manifested and we can behold that in him. And he's saying this is the command. Like just imagine like the, the audacity of saying like this is the commandment. This is the thing. One of the things that I think gets us, gets us tripped up is we don't want to believe that there is a hierarchy in God's commands. There is. Some of God's commands are more important than others. That can make you cringe, but we see this all throughout Scripture. We see it all the time. Jesus talks about it. He talks about it in Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Look what he, what he says there. You're, you're doing all these things, like you're, you're tithing. You tithe so well that you even get down to tithing mint and, and dill and cumin but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, the more important matters of the law. And notice he doesn't say, don't tithe, don't do those things. He says, you ought to have done these also, but you're straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. He's giving this imagery to say, this is a bigger deal. A camel is a bigger thing than a gnat, right? And so Jesus is demonstrating these things are bigger. These are more important. That if you don't do these and you're, while you're doing these, we have a problem. It's similar to when he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? 
He's telling them, look, you're worrying about whether you violate the Sabbath or not. I'm not saying the Sabbath isn't important. I'm saying that, that the life, like saving a life, is more important. I mean, think about it this way. If, if you came over to my house, like if, imagine my sweet daughter, I have my sweet daughter Lydia. If she said to me, Dad, I, I'm trying to obey everything you say. I feel like I'm doing pretty well. There's a couple areas that I'm struggling with. Number one, I just don't always put my laundry away the, the way that you're asking me to. I don't do it on time. I don't do it organized. I kind of throw it in there. I, I unfold them, just kind of stuff things in there. And the other is, every time I walk by Silas, that's my, one of my sons, every time I walk by Silas, I punch him in the face. <laughs> now, some of you know Lydia, and you know that may not be quite the leap that other people might think, but... If I'm, if I'm the dad here in this situation, I might say, um, I think I know which one I'd like to work on first, right? I'm not going to look at those and be like, okay, well, you know, it's important to obey. I'm going to say, hey, let's address this. And imagine if you came over to my house and you see this happen. You watch her walk by Silas, her brother, and just punch him in the face. And while you have this shock and horror on your face, I say, oh, that, yep, I totally, we're going to work on that too. But you should see her sock drawer. It's amazing. It doesn't make any sense, right? It doesn't make any sense. John says, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Jesus said it's the greatest commandment to love God, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's that important phrase there. The second is like it. Well, how is it like it? It's because it flows from the love of God. He's not giving them two separate laws. Love God and then love your neighbor. He's saying it flows from that. You, you can't have one without the other. You cannot obey one without the other. He says we love because he first loved us. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Jesus taught this in the form of a parable. He tells the the story of a a man who is indebted to a ruler and he, he goes and he begs for mercy from the ruler, and, and the ruler forgives his debt. He had a lifetime's worth of debt to be paid back. Everyone would have understood that you get put into debt prison until that debt gets repaid. There was no way this guy could do it. It was huge, colossal debt. And the, the ruler who, who had the right to examine or to exact that debt or punishment from him doesn't and forgives him. And it's this beautiful picture. And then this man, who's just been forgiven his debt, walks out and sees someone who owes him a few bucks and gets angry with the man and says, you must repay me what you owe me. And then he has him thrown into prison until he is paid back. And when the master gets wind of this, the master who had forgiven the debt gets wind of this, he calls the servant, the servant to him and says, You wicked servant, 
I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The central question here is, how, how can you receive mercy and not give it? Answer, you never received it. Look what happens with the master. Like, it's canceled out. He doesn't actually receive forgiveness for his debt. He's put into prison. So you, he, you don't earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others. You don't earn God's love by loving others. By loving others, you demonstrate that you've actually been loved by God. calls him a wicked servant. These are the things that John says about those who do not love their brother. These are the warnings that he gives. In, in, in 2, 9, and he's, he calls them that they are in darkness. Remember we talked about how God is light and in him there's no darkness at all and then we can orbit around the light or we can orbit around these dark things, these created things. And he says, look, if you hate your brother, you are in the darkness. He says they are ignorant. They are blind. Whoever does this, who hates their brother, walks in darkness. He does not know where he's going. He doesn't even realize. He doesn't even know what he's, what he's doing. Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. We love to say the phrase that the, the, the problem with blind spots, the reason nobody knows that they have blind spots is because they're blind spots. You don't see them. You don't know where this is happening. And, and John says if you, if you hate your brother, that's what's happening to you. You're walking around in darkness, no idea where you're going because you don't even know that you're blind. He, he doesn't stop there. In chapter 3, verse 10, he says that those who hate their brother are children of the devil. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. He calls them a murderer in verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I lay this out here so that we would understand how critical this is. Does this sound like an issue of, hey, try to work on this. Try to be a little more loving. Maybe put that in your spiritual goals plan for 2024. No, it's critical. Without it, it is, it is demonstrating that we do not have the love of God dwelling in us. We have not received the mercy of God. And if we have not received the love and mercy of God, we are dead in our sins. I hope that you're hearing this. It grieves me. And I always, I always get this pushback, and I think it's important to address again here, but, like, well, but what about truth? And in my experience, people who try to use truth as justification and a defense for being unloving, are more concerned with being right than loving their brother. They'll say that it's about 
being loving because like, well, to be loving is to speak truth, but it's a defense for being harsh and unkind and unsympathetic. And really, it's about me being right, not about loving my brother. And I know this because if you've ever had a, a child who has gone down a path of destruction, has made poor choices, how do you respond to that? Do you send them a Facebook message outlining all these articles about why this thing that they're wanting to do is going to end and like why it's wrong? Do you have like intellectual arguments with them? Do you mock their thoughts that these things will fulfill them? Do you chastise them, shame them? When, when those things actually do come to fruition and they experience the painful consequences of what they do, do you stand at a distance and say, well, you reap what you sow? Of course you don't. Do you dismiss their pain that has brought them to this point? Do you reject any notion that you maybe have contributed to this moment? No. You plead with them. You beg them. You offer any help that you can possibly think of. If, if you're in Christ, you feel conviction over ways. I know this because I've sat with parents who are grieving over the destruction in their children's lives. And one of the first things they say is, what did I do wrong? That is love. You're still proclaiming truth to your child, but you love them. And so what takes the foreground, what takes the front place is your love for them. You're pleading for them to turn. And you're turning inside and saying, what did I do? What could I do better? How did I, how did I contribute this to this? And yet we look at the world and God says, you're supposed to love them like this. Love them like I've loved you. God's love for you is even stronger than your love for a child. And he tells us to love the world in this way. Where is that response? Where is us being so consumed by love that we're pleading and, and winsome and desiring people to turn and grieving with them and taking accountability and listening to like, how could, what could I have done differently? How can I do something different? What can I do to help you turn from this and to see the light that is in God? I mean, I just imagine people responding when Jesus tells this parable of the unmerciful servant and people saying like, well, Jesus, are you saying that paying de debts isn't important? I think he would say, no, love is more important. Are you saying that the Sabbath isn't important, Jesus? No, love is more important. Because it's what demonstrates the very nature of our God and what he has done for us. How can you receive grace and mercy and love and not give it? And the answer that Jesus and John then repeats, Jesus gives and John repeats is simply, you can't. If you cannot give, then you have not received it. 
If you want to grow in righteousness, I, I love righteousness, love holiness. We were supposed to pursue that together. We're supposed to confront one another in our sins and, and confront those in our own hearts and say, God, please forgive me and, and help me turn from this. We are supposed to be a beacon like that, showing what righteousness looks like. And if, if you want to honor God with your life, you want to impact people for the kingdom, this should be your priority. Learn how to love others as God has loved you. It's the most important thing. It's, it's more important than any of the other things you could imagine. It's critical. Because our Father has loved us. Look at the love with which he has loved us. And his desire, his command, is to love him and to love others. So how it grieves the heart of God when we are dismissive of others in their pain. Judgmental of others in their sin. Apathetic towards others in their suffering condescending to others in their struggles. But have you seen my sock drawer? It's immaculate. I have a quiet time every morning. I listen to Caleb on the way to work. I gave some money. I left a gospel track for my server, which I think says a lot about me because the service was terrible. I told the manager about it. But do you hear the contrast? Like it's a contradiction. We so often worry. Listen, listen this is the last thing I'm going to say about this. And then I'm going to go on. And I, I'm going to repeat this. I've said it before, but it just, I know it hit so many people. I got so much feedback about this. And so I want, to, I want to say it again. I hope that maybe it settles in a little bit more. We worry so much about the sin that we condone. I think we need to worry more about sinful representations of God. Do you understand the difference there? Which is worse? To treat somebody in such a way that they walk away wondering like, well, maybe they don't, maybe they don't think that what I did was so bad. Or to treat someone in such a way that when they walk away, they have a false picture of who God is essentially a false gospel of God cares more about what you have done and you understanding that what this thing is, that this is wrong, than he does about you knowing who he is. Because make no mistake about it, when we do not prioritize radically loving our neighbor, we are nothing like our father, regardless of how tidy our sock drawer is. John calls those people children of the devil. It is critical. So he says this, Jesus says, this is my commandment, the gospel of John, that you love one another as I have loved you. This is the bar. Now that should feel pretty high, right? How in the world can we do that? Okay, like even if, you, even if you're convinced now, you're sitting there, you're going, okay, enough, I get it. It's really critical. So how in the world am I going to do that? I can't possibly love how Jesus loved. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was the propitiation for sins. Like he said, he gave his life. Like I can't do that. I can't pay for somebody's sins. How in the world am I supposed to do that? And I would say you're, you're right. You can't. And neither can I. 
This is why we can't manufacture it. This is why we can't redefine love in our own terms and lower the bar in our own terms and just say, okay, well, by love, it's going to mean this for me because this is all I'm capable of. But if we are to love as God has loved us, we can't do that on our own. We need supernatural help. And I want you to hear this. He gives it. So here's the really exciting thing. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit to love others as Christ has loved us. This is a high bar, but it's not a high bar where God commands it of us and then says, good luck. He's saying in Christ, you can love like this. In Christ, one day you will love like this. So when you see Jesus love people and you see how he functions in the world, you could say, like, look, that's, that's me. That's actually my identity and I'm not there yet. But Christ in me can love people that way. It's, it's not a demand placed on us to crush us. It's a promise that is being fulfilled in us. We do that. It, it flows out. Like when we receive this love, what John's saying, like you are transformed by this love of God. Like this is how you're going to love others. We're transformed by this love. We behold it on display in Christ. And then we're freed to love like that. So, so what does this look like? We'll look at the, the different ways. Like whatever we see, how Jesus loves and how John talks about it, like that's, that's how we're called to love. It is, it is sacrificially selfless. It's, it's selfless. So one of the things John, um, Jeff did really well last week in talking about John was um, how, how God loves differently than we love. Right? So, so he talked about how like the world, in the world, in our flesh, we love in a way that, that people orbit around us. We're self-centered in our love. We love people who have something to offer us. We love people who give us pleasure in some way or validation or whatever. That's how, that's how we love in our sinful flesh. But God loves differently than that. God doesn't need anything from us. So God's love is a giving love. God's love is a, a selfless love because he doesn't need anything. There's nothing we can give him. He didn't create us because he's like, you know, eternity just feels empty. Let's create some people. It's not why God created us. He doesn't get anything. He doesn't receive anything back from us that he needs. And so therefore, he is free to love us selflessly. Now you could say, this is one of those things where I've looked at it before and I'm like, well, great. Great for God. I need things. I don't function that way. I'm not all sufficient. In fact, James goes so far as to say that this is the reason, in fact, why we have all these quarrels and all these interpersonal issues is because we aren't self-sufficient. We need things, and when we don't get them, we fight about it, right? So how in the world am I supposed to do this? Well, Jesus gives clues, often through parables. and gives a parable of, of a banquet in Luke 14. He said, he said also to the man who had invited him, he got invited to this banquet, to this dinner, it says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Try doing that at a wedding. That would be amazing. I'm not going to invite any of our friends or relatives. 
Some of you would appreciate that. Um, But when you give a feast, he says, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Okay, notice something about what he doesn't say there. Jesus doesn't say, hey, invite those who can't repay you because that's the right thing to do. He doesn't say, don't invite those who, or invite those who can't repay you because you shouldn't desire any things. Like you should just be free of desire. What does he say? Hey, invite people who can't pay you back because when you can't be paid back, you get paid back by me. That's a lot better. He's saying seek the better repayment. Like we, we love as those. So God loves as one who has no need. We're able to love as those who have no need because we are, not because we're above needing anything in return, not because we're self-sufficient, but because all that we need is fulfilled in Christ. Everything. So I'm free to love my child as God does because I don't look at my child for validation of me being a good parent or a good person. I look to Christ for validation and that validation is better. I'm free to love my wife as God does because I don't look to her for fulfillment because I look to Christ for my fulfillment and that fulfillment is better. I'm free to love my neighbor as God loves my neighbor because I don't need them to give me anything in return because everything I need or could possibly want is fulfilled in Christ and it's better. So I don't need someone. I can love someone selflessly regardless of their response to me because I'm not dependent on that. Now, do I prefer that they respond with that? Of course. And guess what? So does God. Like, am I pleased when when someone says thank you or recognizes that? Like, yeah, like, of course. And so is God. It's a good thing to do that. That's why we worship. It's good for us to worship God and to give him thanks for all these things. But not because he needs it. It's a good, it's good. It It returns back to us. When we worship God, we're filled up. It's this beautiful thing that forms together. If my love is flowing from God to others, then my love is not dependent on a person's response for me. Do you see how that makes our love different? How that kind of contrasts Christian love with other types of love? The world loves what they find lovely. The world loves what they see as good and lovable. The world loves what loves them back. But like Jeff said last week, God is drawn to the unlovely. And if our love is like God's, then we will do the same. Someone's unloveliness, whether it's in in eyes of sin or in the way that they treat you or anything like that, shouldn't make us distance ourselves. If we love the way God loves us, then we will be drawn to the unlovely, to the brokenhearted. In Luke 6, Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? 
For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. If we really sat and wrestled with this, it would be very challenging. But one thing that's clear is the world loves what loves them back, but we love because he first loved us. Look at what he says. He's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Does that describe how we are? This is radical, but that's what sets it apart. That's why the world looks at the love Christians have for one another and says, that's different. And we behold this in Christ. We see it on display. We behold the love of Christ that redeems his enemies. And if you say like, well, how, how, do, I, how do I put that in practice? Like, that's so difficult. Like, remember what we said two weeks ago. Behold, you become what you behold. So behold Christ, the Christ that redeems his enemies. The, the one that asks for forgiveness for those who called for his murder. Listen, if, if you fill your mind with what people have done to you and what injustices you have suffered and how wrong people are, then you will become bitter and unforgiving. You will be the unmerciful servant who receives forgiveness and then withholds it. You'd be like Cain. When John says, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was the evil one, who, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. See, Cain thought that Abel was the problem. That God's Standard was the problem. He refused to look inward. John is saying in part, like, of course wrong is going to be done to you. Like, of course. Why in the world would you think something different? If there's any negative fallout, and, and there's, there's a lot, but there are some negative fallouts to us having so much religious freedom over the last couple hundred years, and one of those is that we got really comfortable in it. Listen. Christians in this country have had freedom to worship God for a long time. I believe that that is a gift and a blessing from God, but it is not the norm. And we've kind of forgotten that. We think that how's the gospel going to spread without us like protecting and fighting for all of these things? Well, the way it's always spread. But you don't need to be afraid of that. Of course the world hates you. Your love isn't dependent on that. It's not an excuse to not love people. It's not justification for not loving people. It's actually the platform God has given you to show that your love is different. Even like anybody can love a server who gives them good service. Leave a big tip for someone who just completely ignored you and did a terrible job. That's different. 
This is why it bothers me when Christians say, yeah, but what about what they did? What about what they're doing? Why, why aren't you talking about how wrong this other side is? You only present this one side. I'm like, yeah, you're right. Do you know why? Because that desire to point and deflect and say, well, what about them is the spirit of Cain? And focusing on the sins of others leads me down a path of hatred. But if you're amazed on a daily basis at the incredible love of Christ for you and me while we were dead in our sin, while we were dead in our trespasses, while we were enemies of Christ, And you're consumed by that. And you look at how Jesus did that, how he interacted and how he loved me even to the point of death on the cross. And you respond to that by loving even those who hate you. Praying even those who would seek to take away your rights. Having patience with your brothers and sisters who cause you grief. You will be formed more and more into that nature of Christ. And it flows out tangibly. It's so tangible I need to just touch on this. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Again, do you hear the tone of John? Little children, he's pleading with. He's, he's not chastising them. He's not saying, would you get out there and do something for somebody? He's saying, please, see this better thing. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so this is what, like, okay, have you ever had anybody say to you, start a a sentence to you by saying, hey, all due respect? What comes after that? Anything good? Hey, all due respect, I think you're amazing. I think you're knocking everything out of the park. Of course not. We preface those things. Hey, no offense. I don't want you to take any offense at this. But I think you're a great dad. I don't say that. We say those things. We preface those things. But it's actually the opposite of what we're saying. And so when we as Christians say, oh no, I love everybody. I love people. That's why I shame them on social media. You can't just say, I say this in love. And that means that it's love. Love is tangible. Love is demonstrative. Paul pleads with, when he's talking to them, trying to build, like, that they should be able to trust him. He's like, look, we shared our lives with you. We lived among you. We loved you tangibly. He's always pointing to things like that. That's what the incarnation is all about. Jesus, it's God pointing, saying, see how much I love you? Look, you can see it. And we see it. In Jesus, we see it, it's tangible. We see him touch the leper. We see him wash the disciples' feet. We see him hang on the cross. We can see it. They're able to touch the holes in his hands. They see it, it's tangible. We don't have a God that just kind of came down on a cloud and says, hey, just so you know, I love you all, and then just goes back up while everything is broken around us. We have a God who became flesh and walked among us in the brokenness. And loved us. That's why we get up close and personal. That's why we listen to people and we grieve with people, even when we disagree with them, even when we think like that, that maybe they're not seeing it correctly. We still we listen and we weep and we grieve and we sit. Because that's how God has loved you. Have you ever experienced God's tangible presence? 
You just know that you're loved. That's how we are to love others. I don't know about you, but in my mind, my mind plays all kinds of tricks on me. And there'll be some times where I'm like, you know what, God, God's probably pretty ticked with you. I don't think he, I don't think he loves you as much as he did yesterday. Yesterday you're knocking out of the park, today you're not. He probably doesn't love you as much. Do you know what holds me in those times? Remembering the tangible ways that God has loved me. Our love should be visible, evident to everyone. Feeding the hungry, serving the poor, helping at the schools. People should be able to see it. They should be able to see when Faith Church says, we love people, they should say, yeah, I see it. I don't understand it, but I see it. And we're able to do it generously. We just do it tangibly, generously. Giving, not expecting anything in return because we already have everything that we need from God. In the rich young ruler, the story of the rich young ruler, a guy comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, tell me what I have to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, obey everything. Obey the lie. He's like, yep, doing it, nailing it. And Jesus says, you know, one thing you lack he said, I want you to go and sell all your possessions. Give them away. And it says the rich young, this rich young man walks away disheartened because he had so much wealth. We talk about that story a lot of like, you know, you give up everything and, and, and so it's all worth it. And so if you love anything, if you love money more than God, then you're separated. That is true about that. But what I love is what happens right after. Right after that story, Peter's response to it is amazing. Peter's response to Jesus just saying, like he talks about it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. It's so awesome. It's in Mark 10. You should totally look it up. It's amazing. Okay, so he tells him like, hey, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So that guy walks away disheartened. He turns around and Peter's like, awesome. We gave up everything to follow you. We don't have anything. We're super poor, Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, Truly, I, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So Peter's looking at it going, awesome. We're good because we've given up everything. And Jesus turns to him and essentially says, you haven't given up anything that you're not going to receive back a hundred times. Do you see how this transforms us into loving radically and sacrificially and generously? Because there's nothing that we can give up here on earth that we will not receive a hundred times in return, whether here or in heaven. Your comfort, your Saturday afternoon to help your neighbor move. Someone that's in the world, they give up their Saturday afternoon, it's gone. They sacrifice their Saturday afternoon to help you move. That time is gone. They can never get it back. Not so with Christians. You get it back a hundred times more. You're going to have infinite Saturday afternoons. You think about that? Any money that you give to support the ministry of the, of the church or of a missionary, like Chris and Heather, like to just give sacrificially. 
The world gives sacrificially knowing they can't get it back. Bill and Melinda Gates give up money and they say it's gone and now like I, I'm never getting that back. Not for Christians. You give it all away. You're not going to give away anything that God will not repay a hundred times more. Do you see how this isn't just like I'm just above caring about these things? No, care about the better thing. You give up our rights. There's nothing that you can give up here that you won't get back. There's all this fear of like, well, if we give up our rights, if we give up here then, and, and we start wearing a mask or doing this, then, then what's next? And, and I look at it like, give up all of them. There's nothing that God isn't going to repay you a hundred times full. Even your very life by going and sharing the gospel in a dangerous land. You can't sacrifice anything that God isn't going to repay a hundred times or more. See, if we let that kind of love transform us, the one that satisfies every need, the one that is tangible and physical and present, the one that provides everything for us and repays with this greater reward, and we believe that and we know that, then we're free to love people selflessly, to love them like sacrificially, sacrificially and tangibly, to just give and fearlessly and resiliently. We become unoffendable. We become unworried about anything, about even getting anything back. And what hangs on it is the testimony that the world would know what our God is like. The world does not know these things about Jesus. They don't know that it is kindness that leads them to repentance. They they don't know that this Jesus meets them with compassion where they are and loves them. Deeply. They don't know that the first act of them getting right with God is being loved by God. They don't know that. But we do. And if we demonstrate that, they will see it. And they're seeing it right now. And I'm so grateful for our volunteers who've been in the schools showing that this year. At a time when schools aren't allowing volunteers, they're allowing our people in because they trust us. And our people love them. Many of you have been giving as CASA volunteers to stand with kids who can't pay you back. If you want to do something where you can't be paid back, you want to like put that into action, be a CASA volunteer. And if you want to know about that, you can talk to Robbie or contact the church. I've seen it with, with making care packages for healthcare workers, for supporting people who are sick helping people move, all these different things. It's tangible. It's so people can see, oh, this is what God is like. And the result, ultimately, is people look at us, and God willing that they would look at us and say, yeah, I don't know, but those, those people at Faith Church, like they love people. They sure do talk a lot about Jesus. They love people. We see it. Our Father is glorified, and we receive all the joy for it. Let's pray. God, these are just heavy things, and obviously, God, you, <laughs> we could talk about how you love us and how that transforms us, and how it would change the way that we would love our neighbor. God, we could talk about this forever, but God, I pray we would do it. I pray this week, God, that you would fill us right now. God, I pray in the minds and the hearts of people right now. I pray, God, that you would just give us someone in our life. 
that we realize we have not been loving towards. Someone in our life where we have said they're not worthy of my love, they have not loved me back, they have not given me what I need or what I desire. They owe me in some way or they're just so wrong about this thing and they're stubborn and they refuse to see truth. They refuse to see any of this and, and every time I talk to them, it just it goes south. God, show me how to love them. Show me how you have, have loved me when I am stubborn and refusing to see when I'm walking around in ignorance and in blindness and in darkness. I don't even see what I don't see. How, God, did you love me in that? Help me then to love others in that same way. Because, God, you did not wait for us to see before you loved us. You loved us first. You did not wait for us to love you before you loved us. You loved us first. You did so without reservation. Tangibly, sacrificially, selflessly, radically, generously, resiliently. God, transform us to do the same so that we can paint a true picture of who you are. It's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen.